What a joy it is uh, to worship with y'all, as we say in Texas. Um, I am so thankful for this church family and the way that you continue to care for me and support me, um, even though I'm far from home. But being back here this morning, uh, it really does feel like home to me. So thank you for having me. My dad traveled 30 straight hours to get here, and he was a little jet-lagged, so... Someone keep an eye on him and make sure he's not dozing off over there. Um, Keep your Bibles open to Romans 14 and 15 so we can look at that together. I grew up right down the street from here, um, three older brothers, my parents, and once or twice a year we would all pile in the minivan and make the 14-hour drive down to Tampa, Florida to visit the grandparents. And as we drove south down I-95 with... Uh, about 200 miles left to go in North Carolina, we would see the first of 120 billboards for what's known as America's favorite highway oasis south of the border. Maybe you've made this drive and you know what I'm talking about. South of the border is basically a glorified rest stop with some tacky Mexican-themed gift shops and, and restaurants and even a couple old rusty roller coasters. And when my brothers and I were young we would beg and beg my dad to stop at south of the border because we had bought into the hype being sold by all of these billboards. And, and when we got a little bit older, we would still beg my dad to stop because it had become a family tradition. But nine times out of ten, to our dismay, my dad would just drive right on by. Man, disappointing every time. But when you pass the exit for south of the border, right past the exit on the right side of the road, there was one last billboard. And this billboard depicted Pedro, who's the the lovable south-of-the-border mascot, saying in big letters, Back up, amigo, you missed it. (laughs) And I think Paul's message to the Christians in Rome is not all that different from Pedro's message on that billboard here in Romans 14. See, in Romans 14, Paul is addressing a point of contention between two groups of Christians in the Church of Rome, those he calls the strong and those he calls the weak. And and the strong were were probably predominantly Gentile Christians, and the weak were probably predominantly Jewish Christians. And the distinction between them is is not a a difference in the strength of their will or the quality of their character. The distinction between these two groups is, is a difference in the level of assurance they have that their faith permits them to do or not do certain things. And in this case, um, the issue is whether their faith gives them the freedom to uh, disregard the observance of special days or or dietary restrictions that were a part of the Jewish faith. The strong in faith understand this freedom, and and the weak in faith, they still feel loyal to those practices. This point of contention between these two groups, it's not about the core doctrines of the gospel. It's actually about implications that the gospel has on, on their life and the way that they're faith is lived out. See, it's, it's not about what the gospel is. It's about how the gospel applies to their life. But, but strictly speaking, there is a right and a wrong in this debate. See, the gospel does, in fact, free them and it frees us from the observance of, of special days and, and dietary restrictions. See, Paul says this even in verse 14 of, of chapter 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So there is a a right answer here. 
There is a, a correct application of the gospel. And for those of us who, who just care about being right, that might seem like all we need to know. You know, the strong are wrong. The, I mean, the strong are right. The weak are wrong. Case closed. The weak, they just need to deal with the truth. And if it were just about being right, then I think the point of this passage would be to, to correct the faulty theology of the weak. But that's not what Paul does. In fact, Paul's message here is primarily directed at the strong in faith. And what does Paul have to say to the strong in faith? Well, I think in a nutshell, he's saying, back up, amigos, you've missed it. And what do they miss? They, they miss Romans 12 and 13. They miss the, the call to love one another as brothers and sisters, which means that to will the good of one another, to care more about their relationship with God than about being right on this issue. They miss the highest application of the gospel, the fulfillment of the law to love one another. So I think this is what Paul's saying to the strong in faith. He's saying, look, technically you're right. You know, your theology is accurate. But the way that you're applying it in your community and in your relationships, it shows you don't really understand it. See, if you're so concerned about being right and improving yourself right on this issue, that you're willing to cause division in your church, and you've missed the point. And here's the point, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Before we, we dive further into the, into the text, I just want to say a few words about why I think this message is really significant for me and for us. I, I've really been convicted in my study of this text, and I just want to share some of that with you. I was a, a philosophy major in college, and all that means is I'm totally okay with thinking and talking about really big ideas without ever actually doing anything about them. And that's okay, except the problem is that I think so often I approach the Bible in the same way. You know, my, my only concern is knowing in an intellectual way what it says and what it means. And when that's my only concern, I don't, I don't feel the weight of it. Or I don't experience the beauty of it, and I'm not changed by it. So I think Paul's warning here is something that I and maybe we really need to hear. You know, as you've been going through the book of Romans, and the book of Romans forces you to think and talk about some really big theological ideas. You know, things like union with Christ and, and justification by faith and, and our adoption as sons and daughters of God. But this passage here in Romans 14, it, it warns us that it could be possible for us to know a lot about those things. Even, even be able to articulate them competently and, and eloquently and yet entirely miss the point of them by failing to, to apply them in our community and in our relationships with one another. See, I think we could be in big trouble if our only concern is being right about what the book of Romans says. George Whitfield was a, a leader of the Great Awakening in the 18th century and in a sermon on this passage, he said it this way, in the same way that the kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking, neither does it consist in being orthodox in our notions or being able to talk fluently of the gospel. You may have orthodox heads, and yet you may have the devil in your hearts. 
You may have clear heads. You may be able to speak, as it were, with the tongues of men and angels, the doctrines of the gospel, but yet at the same time you may never have felt them upon your own souls. If you have never felt the power of them upon your, your hearts, your talk of Christ and free justification and, and having rational convictions of these truths will but increase your condemnation. Take care, therefore, of resting in a form of knowledge. It is dangerous. If you do, you place the kingdom of God in meat and drink. These are, are sobering words for me to hear. Because what it means is I could be right without living righteously. I could think and say all the right things and yet completely miss the point of them. Because ultimately what we're after is not just accurate theological beliefs, but what we're after is is gospel-transformed lives as, as members of the family of God. And in this passage, Paul is saying that when we really understand the gospel— not just in our heads, but when it sinks down into our hearts, we're going to start loving one another more than we love being right. If that's not true of us, we need to back up because we've missed it. So let's get into the text here. Paul's command is straightforward. Verse 13. You can look at it with me. It says, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So his command is, is we should stop judging one another. That's, that's the negative command. But more than that, there's a positive command. We, we should make every effort not to do anything that would cause a brother to stumble. And that encompasses so many different things and so many different situations. We couldn't just make a list of rules that would ensure that we never caused anybody to stumble. This is about walking through life with real people in real situations and understanding them and discerning as you go how best to care for them and love them. So if we're going to live this out, I think we need to understand some things about the journey that we're on together as Christians. I think this text shows us three things about applying the gospel in our relationships. It it gives us the, the parameters and the pursuit and the purpose of Christian community. So we're going to look at those three things. Let's start in, in verse 14 and 15. Paul says, I know and and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. See, when the gospel changes our hearts, we're going to begin walking in love. Love will be like, like the path that we walk on through the Christian life. It'll be like the parameters, the, the, the boundaries that guide our, our words and our actions. And so when we stray off the, the path of love, that's when we'll know we've gone off track. Here's what that meant for, for the Christians in Rome. Because the strong Christians in Rome knew and were persuaded, like Paul, that, that Jesus' death for them made following these dietary restrictions unnecessary, it wasn't wrong for the strong Christians to eat meat. The problem was that the weak Christians didn't share that conviction. Following those, res- those regulations was tied up with what the weak Christians thought it meant to honor and worship God. So to eat meat would actually be to do something they felt was wrong. It would burden their consciences. 
And so for the, the weak Christians, eating meat actually would be wrong. So even though the strong Christians are right theologically, they're, they're allowed to eat meat. By eating meat, they're doing a couple things. First of all, they're offending their brothers and their church. And more than that, they're actually even pressuring them into doing something that would be wrong for them to do. And so in this way, they're straying from the path of love. And I think they're doing it because they're more concerned about being right than they are concerned about their brothers and sisters in their church. I realize I'm guilty of this same thing. I love being right. And not only that, I love proving myself right. This past year, I've been an intern at a church in in Austin. I, I work for three pastors who are incredible men, and I've learned so much from them. But I'm the young guy, and I'm the intern, so sometimes they treat me as a little brother, which thankfully is a role I'm well accustomed to. Um, but not too long ago, I lost a bet with one of the pastors about something really silly and insignificant. Um, and I thought I was right about it. So that night, I just couldn't get it out of my head. So I ended up writing a two-page paper trying to argue my case for why I was right about this silly thing. And so the next day, I come in with this two-page paper, and I, I give it to my pastor. I'm like, confident. I'm like, yes, this is going to prove that I was right. Uh, and just to, to get under my skin... He takes this paper, and he looks at it for no more than two seconds and puts it in a paper shredder right in front of me. And I was like, oh, man, that just ate me. Oh, man, I was so upset. I was so frustrated because I love being right. And I think I love being right and proving myself right. I love it so much because it's tied up with my ego. It's a pride issue for me. But I think taking so much pride in being right is a dangerous thing. It might even be a foolish thing. Because the reality is this, 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, which means if I could be right about everything, but do not have love, I am nothing. So how do we walk in love? Last summer I was in Colorado with my brother Cameron, and we decided to hike Long's Peak, which is one of the 14ers in the Rockies. And in order to get to the summit and back before the afternoon thunderstorms, we had to get on the trailhead at 3 a.m. in the morning, which meant we had to leave the house at midnight, which meant by the time the sun was coming up, we had hiked six miles straight uphill, and I was exhausted. I hadn't slept. The altitude was making my head just pound. I was was exhausted. And Cameron, I think, was doing okay. I think having children has made him a little bit more accustomed to functioning on very little sleep. So he was doing all right. So I think in this case, I was, in a, in a very literal, physical sense, the weaker brother. And Cameron could have hiked to the top of that mountain twice as fast as me. He could have just left, left me in his dust, and, and I probably would have gotten really discouraged and never made it to the top. Or Cameron could have just harshly demanded that I keep up to his pace. In which case, I probably would have collapsed from exhaustion. But Cameron didn't do either of those things. Cameron actually slowed down, and he walked at my pace, and and he encouraged me, and we walked together, and we we made it together to the top of the mountain. So I think this is a, a picture of what it looks like to walk in love in our relationships. So Cameron used his strength in consideration for my good. 
That's what it looks like to walk in love. But, but why would Cameron do that? You know, there were tons and tons of other people on the trail that day that just walked right past me in the midst of my weakness. Why would Cameron stick with me in the midst of my weakness? Well, it's because he's my brother. And see, I think if we're going to walk in love in our relationships, we need to start seeing each other as brothers and sisters in the family of God. And how did we come to be brothers and sisters? Look at what Paul calls the weaker brother in verse 15. He says, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. We are collectively ones for whom Christ died. It's our common bond. It's what unites us, the love of Christ for us. And we need to start viewing each other in light of the love that Christ has for us. See, Christ died to make us children of God, so we need to treat each other as brothers and sisters with love. And see, when we start to truly see each other through the lens of Christ's love for us, I think it's actually going to impact our actions, the things that we say and the things that we do. And, and here's how we'll know when our hearts have been changed this way. We're going to stop being so preoccupied with questions like, is what I'm doing right? Or is what I'm doing allowed? And we'll start being more preoccupied with questions like, is what I'm saying or is what I'm doing, is it good for those who are impacted by it? See, we're going to start being less concerned about being right and more concerned about one another. See, love is, is the path on which we as Christians ought to walk through life and our relationships with one another. But our journey together, it also has a pursuit. It has a direction that it's headed in. Look at verses 17 to 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. When our hearts are changed by the gospel, we will pursue peace with one another. As I said, the, as I said the, the Christians in Rome were disagreeing about implications of the gospel. And, and Paul in these verses is saying, hey, here's an indisputable implication of the gospel, way more significant than whether or not you can eat meat. And here's this implication. Whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God. So in light of this truth, let's pursue peace and build each other up. I think it's significant that he uses the word pursue. This is a, it's an active verb. Peace is something that we need to strive for and actively attempt to bring about. And this is different than just toleration. Paul doesn't say, hey, in light of the gospel, just do your best to, to put up with one another. He calls us to, to pursue peace in our relationships. Strength finders is one of these personality tests. Um, it helps you figure out what you're really good at. And I, I took it not too long ago. And according to strength finders, my number one strength is called harmony. So you might think I'd be pretty good at, at pursuing peace in my relationships. But I think there are actually a couple different approaches that we take to peace. I think there are peacekeepers and there are also peacemakers. And I think my harmony strength might mean that I'm just a pretty good peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is someone who actually wants to just avoid confrontation at all costs, even if this means 
sweeping potential conflict under the rug or, or quietly holding grudges underneath the surface where they grow and fester. And I think being a peacekeeper in this sense, it might actually mean running from actual peace. Because running toward actual peace might involve getting a little messy on the way. But a peacemaker, on the other hand, is someone who pursues peace and is even willing to to encounter the the obstacles that get in the way of peace. So I think pursuing peace, real peace, it might involve some awkward and uncomfortable conversations. It might involve uh, time and and effort and intentionality. It, It might even involve things like confession repentance and forgiveness and those can feel like costly and difficult and messy things but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount he said blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God part of what it means to be members of the family of God is to pursue peace with your siblings I, I grew up with three brothers um, and I think my mom probably did a pretty good job of keeping us in line when we were here at church. But when we were back home in the basement of our house, it was sometimes a different story. There were bound to be some disagreements and some fights and even a couple bloody noses and some holes in the drywall. But when, when we were young, our parents invented a, a, mean, a, a means of settling disputes. And it was called the love bench. And the concept was really simple. When, when two brothers got in a fight, we had to, to sit down on a, on a piano bench, and we weren't allowed to leave the piano bench until we hugged each other. And it was a really simple way of communicating to us that although our disagreements are inevitable, because boys will be boys, division among brothers was not an option in our family. So pursuing peace with my siblings was part of what it meant to be a son of my mom and dad. And it's no different in the church family. See, disagreement is okay, and points of contention are okay, but division among fellow family members is not an option. See, the gospel, our our adoption as sons and daughters of God, I think what it does is it turns the, the rows of seats in this sanctuary into long love benches. We shouldn't leave here unless we're pursuing peace in our relationships with one another. So when our hearts have have been changed by the gospel, we'll we'll start walking in love and and we'll walk in the direction of peace. But for what purpose? To what end? What's at stake? Look at chapter 15 and verses 5 and 6. Paul prays this. He says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, our harmony, our our unity as a church isn't intended just so that we can all get along. It actually has a bigger purpose. There's something at stake here. See, our, our harmony... Is something we ought to pursue so that we may, with one voice, glorify God. There, there's still a, a few chapters left in, in the book of Romans, and I, I don't want to spoil the ending for you, but 
This is what the book of Romans is all about. It's about the glory of God. See, Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome so that they might come to, come to wonder at and rejoice in and worship together the goodness of God to them in Jesus Christ. As a pastoral intern at my church in Austin, I kind of get a, a behind-the-scenes look at what the church is all about. And this is what I've learned. The church is all about the glory of God. That's what worship on Sundays is about. And the music that we, the songs that we sing and the music we play and, and the community groups and, and the outreach events, all of that is fundamentally about the glory of God. And so too, our, our unity as a church, it's not an end in itself. It has a bigger purpose, which is that God's name might be magnified by it. I want you to notice also that these verses, Paul just breaks out in a spontaneous prayer in the middle of this book. And he's praying that, that God's name might be glorified by the unity of his church. And in John 17, Jesus prays a very similar prayer. Jesus prays that, that we might be one, even as he and the Father are one, so that, Jesus says, the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. See, our unity as a, ter- as a church is intended to testify to the love that God has for us in Jesus so that the world may know that God loves us even as he loves his own son. And this drives home to me how important and significant our relationships are. See, for the, for the weak Christians in Rome, refraining from meat was tied up with what it meant to honor God. But for the strong Christians in Rome, refraining from meat was not tied up with what it meant to honor God. And that's okay because that was a matter of conscience. But what Paul is saying here is that whether or not they love each other in the midst of their disagreement is necessarily tied up with what it means to honor God. So we need to recognize that that same truth in our lives. How we relate to one another is necessarily tied up with what it means to honor God. So we need to follow Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 10 where he says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is the picture of how how a gospel sinner, a gospel-transformed community works through its disagreements and its points of contention, its differences. We walk in the path of love in the direction of peace for the glory of God. But I think there's a, a problem with this picture, for me at least. The problem with this picture is that so often my life doesn't resemble it all that much. I think the reason for that is I'm more interested in my own glory than the glory of God. And that causes me to, to care more about being right than, than caring and loving other people. And so I, I don't pursue peace. Instead, I pursue what pleases me. In Isaiah 53, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. So how do we get back on the right path? How do we get back on that path of love? Well, Paul gives us two really crucial pieces of guidance here in chapter 15. I want to look at these really quickly. In verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 
So if we're going to get back on the right path, we need to be instructed by the Word of God. It's not enough for us just to, to know what God's Word says. We actually need to be instructed by it. That means we need to submit to it with humility. And for it to, for it to change us, we need to continually and with endurance go in the direction that it points us. And that direction is always back to Jesus. And that's precisely what Paul does in this passage. He uses the Bible, Psalm 69, to point us back to Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So to journey through the Christian life, the way that Paul calls us to, we need footsteps to follow in. And Jesus, he he modeled perfectly how we're to walk in love and pursue peace for the glory of God. So we need to follow his example. But Paul doesn't just point us to Christ's example. He actually points us back to what Paul has spent so much of this book talking about. He points us back to the very heart of the gospel. He points us to the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. He quotes Psalm 69, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That means the condemnation that we justly deserve, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. See, Paul is pointing us back to Romans 8, where he said, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is exactly what Isaiah was pointing us to as well. He said, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if we're going to live this life that Paul calls us to, this, this gospel, this good news, it needs to be more than something we just think about and something we just talk about. It needs to be something that we, as Whitfield said, feel upon our hearts and our souls. We need to depend on it. We need to run toward it. We need to be changed by it. We need to let the love that Christ has for us motivate our love for one another. We need to let the the peace that we have with God through Christ's work on our behalf, we need to let that motivate our pursuit of peace with one another so that we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Let's pray.